Welcome to ASHTA Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials testing and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Now, here's our host, Brian Johnson. Today, we've got another episode on the podcast, and I have a guest here with me, Greg Urich. He is the manager of business development and basically whatever doesn't fit into anybody else's role at Ashto Resource. Is that accurate, Greg? Yeah, thanks, Brian. <laughs> uh, actually, technical <laughs> services is the formal. Oh, oh, that's what that is. Y- yes, sir. Thank you. Well, Greg, Greg has been in a leadership position at Ashto Resource uh, for quite some time. He is our resident geotech expert, and he often is the go-between between Ashto Resource staff and a lot of the, the experts in the geotechnical testing world that reside in ASTM Committee D18. Would you agree with that assessment, Greg? Uh, yes, Brian, that's accurate. I've been involved with D18 committees for many years, especially the geotechnical testing areas. And D18, for those that don't know, are, are soil and rock related testing methods. I would like to give a little bit of background on the direct shear test. So let's let's talk just a, in general terms. Why is the direct shear test performed? Uh, yes, Brian. You know, the, the direct shear test is a way to evaluate the shear strength of the soil. And that's important because in, in many, many projects, we are placing some type of an additional burden on the soil other than the natural overburden that exists. And when we begin building structures or placing additional loads on the soil, we need to evaluate what's going to happen to the soil. Uh, The the most obvious thing is that the soil is going to consolidate. However, in addition to that, there's going to be a lot of excess pore pressure, pore water pressure that is dissipated from the material. And we're not always building on a, in a big flat field. We often build where there's an embankment or some type of a slope involved. And this is when it becomes especially important to evaluate shear strength and cohesion of the soil. And this is a quick method to evaluate the strength of that material. And it allows us to get a pretty good idea what a typical normal force and where that soil is going to fail so that we can adjust our design accordingly. A more complex uh, method to evaluate shear strength of soil is triaxial compression. That is ASTM D4767, I believe. It's a much more lengthy test, but provides a lot more data However, it takes a long, long time to perform that method. So the direct shear can, is really kind of a quick triaxial test in some ways, but it does yield some very useful data and is you know, very typically used in design along with the triax. Okay, so the people who use the test results for the direct shear, are they often the geotechnical engineer or design engineer? That's correct. That would be the normally the person that would be interpreting the results, maybe not performing the test, but certainly interpreting the test results. Yeah, now the reason why I brought you in here today is that one of the questions we get 
is about direct shear testing and specifically the direct shear box and this notion that the top box needs to be separated and essentially floating above the bottom box so that you can run the test properly. So one question I'd ask you about this is why does Ashto Resource care so much about the, about this apparatus? Well, the apparatus is important in, in the sense that if the upper half of the top shear box exceeds a certain load, in other words, it places uh, an excessive load on the specimen, it can affect the results of the shear strength of the test, which in turn are going to be used to uh, in the engineering design. So in, a, in an effort to get the most accurate results from this test, we have to make sure we're evaluating any force that's being applied by the top half of that shear box onto the soil structure. Now, some people, when they run into this situation, they say, well, it's not really on it. It is around it. So how is it exerting force on the, on the specimen? Well, if you consider that the frames of the direct shear device, there's a top and a bottom portion to the frame. Those frames are separated after the specimen is consolidated to a certain level. When they are separated, the top frame, the top half of that box, stays and is basically supported by the soil structure. So any mass is imparted onto the structure and is going to change the uh, resistance, the frictional resistance and cohesion of that specimen during shear testing. But how does it, how is it on it though, since it's around it, is the question that people sometimes wonder. Well, the specimen is held in place and restrained laterally by that shear box. So when you separate the frames, you know, what's holding up the top half of that box is the soil structure. So the friction on the side of the soil within the frame is, is holding up the box. So it's clinging to the outside and, and putting some friction on it and, and basically it's carrying it. Exactly. It's carrying that frame, that top half of the box is being carried by the soil. Yeah, and that top box is generally quite heavy. They tend to be. They've gotten better over the years. Some of the older machines, those boxes, you know, they, they have to be rigid, uh, but they were made of uh, steel or some sort of an iron composition, quite heavy. Some of the newer boxes are made of an alloy, some type of an aluminum or magnesium mixture. So while they're much lighter, they still often fail to meet the criteria, especially at lower normal forces during testing. Now, some people, in order to resolve this, they will consider that some of these direct shear boxes have Teflon screws or, or uh, a Teflon cap at the bottom of the screw where they separate the top and bottom box and they feel that while it's gliding on top of this Teflon screw cap, then that actually solves the problem. But my understanding is that is not suitable. Can you tell people why not? Yeah, that, that's correct, Brian. It is not a, a suitable way to address this issue because what you still have, even though these are Teflon coated fixtures and they have low frictional resistance, that load is still being transferred and still can be detected during the shear part of the test. So 
it's not allowed to be used under the ASTM method. It, it, furthermore, you can have a, a situation during the shear of the test, the, the top frame actually moves. You, you can't see it because it's small, but it moves up and down as the shear is occurring. Having those Teflon uh, spacers in effect, you still have an occasion where when that frame is being lifted by the particles, you're then separating those Teflon spacers from being in contact with the lower half of the box, if that makes sense to you. It does. So then you run into the situation where it is then imparting that load again for the short times that it's lifted off. That's correct. Absolutely. So okay, it now, really doesn't resolve the issue. Okay. Now what about the ones where the top shear box is bolted in place and it, it confines the, the specimen at that point, which may cause a different issue, I would think. But is that considered to be acceptable? Actually, it is not. There are very few machines that are designed that way. Most of them are designed where the top half is able to move or float. But there are some older designs where the top half of that box is fixed in place. Once the frames are separated and shearing begins, it's not allowed to move. And, and technically, that does not meet the requirement. Okay, so what is someone to do in this situation? They've got an old direct shear machine. Clearly, there's an issue with the, the way it's built. Are they typically able to modify these old pieces of equipment so that they can get into conformance with the standards? That one is a bit tricky, Brian. When you have a machine that's designed that way, it's really difficult to modify it. I'm not aware of any easy fix to address that issue. And it might just be that they're not able to meet the ASTM requirement. Okay, so for those that might be able to, what kind of adjustments would be able to be performed and how would they figure out if they're suitable? Okay, in the case of, of a device that you described where the top half of the box is fixed, I'm not aware of any fix other than probably redesigning the whole top box or trying to replace it <clears throat> with something that's most likely custom fabricated. Again, most machines do not have the top half of the box fixed and have the top half where it's in a floating uh, design. In that case, uh, it's much easier to address the mass of the top backs by applying a counterbalance to the device. It's relatively effective and easy to do. Okay, so let's talk about that then. How can I put together a counterbalance? I mean, that sounds like a, some sort of basic engineering concept needs to be applied. What are the typical pieces of equipment or apparatus that I can put together to make a counterbalance? There are several designs that would be satisfactory, but essentially, you want to get the mass, obtain the mass of the top half of your shear box. And then you know what, what the mass is that you have to counterbalance. Normally, you would drill or attach uh, a couple of anchor points, at least two, to the top half of, of the, the shear box, uh, centrally located so it's, it remains balanced. And using a spring and some type of a very basic pulley system, you would apply a counterweight to effectively 
you know, eliminate the mass created by that top box. Several manufacturers actually sell their version of a counterbalance, and I think they're fairly cheap or inexpensive. And often that's an easier way to go as opposed to trying to design something on your own and also save you a little time. Yeah, now why does this keep coming up? I mean, th this has been an issue probably the entire time I've been at Ashto Resource, over 20 years. Uh, <laughs> this particular issue has been cu coming up and it still does. What's the deal? Is there is there a problem with the standard? Is there is there something else that can be done to help people understand? And by the way, I don't think we mentioned the standards the entire time. We're talking about D3080 and ASTM and in Ashto, it's T206? 236. 236. I've always confused those two. It's perplexing. It has been an issue for many years, Brian. And uh, this came about, and this is just my understanding, don't quote me necessarily on this, but there was some design work being done on a, on a significant project that I believe was connected to either the Corps of Engineers or the Bureau of Reclamation. In any case, that part doesn't matter. What matters is that uh, this was before this requirement was in place. They were running thousands of direct shear tests. And what they found was at lower normal forces, so when using a smaller load on the consolidation part of the test, the data was very, very erratic, and it really made no sense. And so the team of, uh, I'm assuming, geotechnical and, and civil engineers working on that project scratched their heads a bit, a bit and tried to figure out what was happening. What they determined after looking at the data was that the top half of the shear box had a, had a large effect on the outcome and results of the test method up to a certain point. So in an effort to address this, they eventually uh, went to ASTM and inserted this requirement for the top half of the shear box. And, and, and the way it reads right now is that it, the mass of the top half of the box shall not exceed 1% of the normal force used. Now, I've had many discussions with engineers over the years as to whether or not that 1% figure is a little bit too tight and some agree some disagree the the main problem is that to really come up with if you want to change that value it would take a whole lot of testing and, and uh, data analysis to to modify it so that one percent value has stuck and it's been required for many years and i don't see that it's going to change anytime soon most of the manufacturers have attempted to address it uh, as I said earlier, by lightening, using lighter materials for the shear box. And, and it's it's helped to a degree, but it hasn't completely solved the problem. All right. Well, that, that's a good good background on that. And, and I know that you've worked with Richard Ladd. I'd just like to mention his name. He's one of the important people that's been working on standards development in the ASTM in the soil section for years and years. And it is really important that these stories are, are maintained and understood by the next generation of standards developers so that those lessons don't have to be relearned to a uh, some sort of 
engineering consequence. It's better that we can just maintain that knowledge base and, and keep continuing to improve as we go along uh, with the standards. So, so thanks for mentioning that. I mean, I think you've provided plenty of useful information to anybody who runs into this issue with their top shear box. If you have any questions about this and you want to get in touch with Greg, please reach out to Greg Urich at G-U-R-I-C-H, U-H-E-R-E-K, at ashtoresource.org if you have any other questions for him on this topic. Thanks again for your time today, Greg. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resources' Twitter feed or go to ashtoresource.org.